Are you pregnant or a new parent looking to ensure a better postpartum experience? Or are you a birth worker looking to improve your postpartum care skills? Check out Thriving After Birth, an online self-paced course by me, midwife and educator Tanya Tringali. It's 10 and a half hours of video content featuring experts in lactation, mental health, pelvic floor health, pediatric sleep issues. You also get worksheets and a workbook, as well as options to have a one-on-one session with me. Sign up at motherwitmaternity.com slash thriving, and let's improve postpartum care together. episodes, including this one, left for this season. So just a reminder that we will take a four-week break and we will be back with a season three, which I'm super excited about. I have some really great guests planned for you and some really exciting stories. Um, As always, I just want to remind you that if there is something you want to hear about, learn about, someone in particular that you really want interviewed on this show, if you have a story you want to share or you want, are a professional and you want to share your work with this audience, um, please reach out. You can email me at Tanya, T-A-N-Y-A, at motherwitmaternity.com. I am very accessible and you know I really want to collaborate with the people that are really tuning in. Um, So thank you for being here. Thank you for being on this journey with me. And for consumers out there, and you know, honestly, for healthcare providers, you can pass this information along to your clients as well. I just want to be really clear about how I've streamlined my offerings lately. Um, You know, it's, we all go through these learning curves of trying to figure out how to put out there what it is that people need, but make it easily understood and easily accessible. So here's the latest revision on how I explain what my offerings are. Okay. So the Cadillac is my monthly subscription program, one-on-one support, live sessions every two weeks on an ongoing basis for as long as you're in the program and daily texting and Marco Polo. That's how that works in a nutshell. Okay. I've also got a group prepare for postpartum option. I've got a lot more groups that I want to gather and uh, put out there. But for right now, I have a monthly first Monday evening of every month group two-hour prepare for postpartum. We'll go through some great topics that are really important that I think people don't often think about. Um, And I want your partners or your main support person to be there. And lastly, we have the online course Thriving for Birth. It's 10 and a half hours of content. It is not just my voice. There are seven other amazing professionals, including mental health people, lactation consultants, pelvic floor, and infant sleep coaches. So we've got voices all around, and it's it's really accessible and easy to listen to um, with bonus return to fitness content. So three different options, three different price points, three different ways of learning. Um, please, Share this with your loved ones that are in need of support. Share this with your clients that are in need of support. Thanks for listening. On with the show. 
My guest today is Nurse Nikki. She is a family nurse practitioner, trained doula, and IBCLC. She is the owner and founder of Bloom Maternal Health and is one of my heroes. Her mission is to improve maternal health outcomes and decrease disparities, especially for black women. She inspires me to think outside the box in ways that are hard for me. And interestingly enough, she also encourages me to think inside the box in ways that challenge me. I'll try to explain what I mean later. But seriously, my mentors aside, a couple of which you've met this season, she is up on a pedestal with those I respect most. Nurse Nikki runs multiple programs, including Bloom Community Health, Bloom Period, and My Yoni, which we will talk more about today. She also provides services both virtually and in person to pregnant and postpartum people, as well as people who have had breast and gynecological surgeries and those who have experienced pregnancy loss. She is one of the lactation consultants that shares her expertise in Thriving After Birth, my online comprehensive self-paced course on all things postpartum. Anyway, we happen to be recording during Black Maternal Health Week. So while this won't air for a number more weeks, um, I want to give a shout out to a couple people in addition to Nurse Nikki, who are people that are working really hard to improve outcomes. I'm choosing these two specifically because they're helping people of color identify care providers of color, which is a critical strategy to improving outcomes for black women and other people of color. This is called racially concordant care if you're wanting to learn more about it and why it's so important that we're all committed to increasing the number of healthcare providers of color. Okay, so my shout outs are to Nicole Diggins of Sister Midwife Productions and Kimberly Seals Allers of the Earth App. If you don't know these, go check them out. I'll be sure to link their Instagram accounts and websites in my show notes. All right, on with the show. Ooh, and a season three teaser is that Nicole Deggins of Sister Midwife Productions will be a guest on season three. I'm so excited. I can't wait to interview her. Oh, and a gentle reminder that nothing we discuss on this show should ever be considered medical advice. Please speak to your local provider about anything that comes up in this show that resonates with you and your needs and your health care. Nikki, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I love talking to you. <laughs> I know. I love that this is yet one more opportunity to hang out. Um, yeah, it's really, really a treat. Um, and I just want everyone to know who you are. I sometimes share your posts and it's important to me that my people know, know who you are, but now this is a different way of going deep and being able to talk about some things better than just like a simple Instagram post, which, you know, mm -hmm. doesn't put a dent in it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, before we get going, will you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your personal life, whatever you feel comfortable sharing. Um, and then I want to take a deep dive into how you got to be nurse Nikki. Okay. Um, so I'm Nikki Hunter Greenway, probably better known as Nurse Nikki. I'm a board certified family nurse practitioner, an international board certified lactation consultant. I'm a wife um, and a mom of three <laughs> littles under 10. <laughs> um, and I own a private practice called Blue Maternal Health. Um, it's a postpartum wellness clinic that provides telehealth and house calls. Um, I'm licensed in Texas and Louisiana. I live in Texas now because I recently moved from Louisiana. 
And I'm just trying to figure out Texas right now. So that's that's my current status and my status. <laughs> and that's no small feat, figuring mm-hmm. out Texas. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and, and maneuvering within Texas, right? I mean, that is, yes. I, I don't envy you in this position. <laughs> Um, now, after just saying that we can only scratch the surface when we when I'm swapping Instagram posts with you as you were introducing yourself and mentioning your family, I did remember that one of your children, you make one of the you make the funniest Facebook and Instagram posts because of the things one of your children says. <laughs> yes, the youngest one, the youngest one who we call Ladybug. Um, she is she's my spirit child. <laughs> like we have similar things and she is unapologetic in her in who she is as a five-year-old almost six-year-old in three weeks so she she keeps us on our toes and challenges me in every way and I wish I was as bold as her (laughs) I wish I'm pretty sure that somewhere inside you are you just frame it with more poise but (laughs) you guys are the same and I do see that Um, Mm -hmm. I also see that she seems to have an amazing sense of humor. Oh, absolutely. Almost like she's messing with you. Do you know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> yes. We call her the elder. I'm like, there's an 80 year old person <laughs> inside of your body. Cause some of the things she says, and I had to check myself. I'm like, wait, that's, that's what an adult would say. Like, girl, watch your mouth. <laughs> like smart and witty and funny. And mm-hmm. she always catches me off guard. And I'm so glad that you post those things. <laughs> yes. Impeccable timing. Impeccable timing. <laughs> oh, awesome. Okay. So, um, I really want to know, and I want our listeners to know a little bit about this too. And um, I think two things will connect. I want to know how it is that you ended up striking out on your own so early in your career, because that's just not what most of us do. Most of us who end up doing something on the fringe, like what we're both doing, Mm -hmm. do so after 20 years of letting the system beat us down. But I think you should probably start by telling us a little bit about your educational path, because I feel like there's Mm -hmm. probably a relationship there. Yeah, so I um, started my undergrad. I have a degree in sociology from Northwestern University. While at Northwestern, I was pre-med. I always said I was going to be a pediatrician, as like 95% of the population (laughs) said that they're going to be a pediatrician or OBGYN. And I went, I did a um, pre-med program. Uh, my junior year at the University of Sussex in Brighton, England. And I was supposed to work with the doctors there, but one of the, one of the wars <laughs> broke out. Um, and um, I was working with nurse practitioners, all types of nurse practitioners in, in full autonomy, by the way. And I was working at an endocrine clinic. Now, when we think of endocrine in the United States, we think of diabetes, we think of thyroid disorder, but this endocrine clinic was for people that were transitioning from one sex to another. So they had just had surgeries. And it was so eye-opening to me, just the compassionate care that was given, but the evidence-based care that was given that I was like, I want to do this. <laughs> this is what I'm supposed to do. So um, that's what kind of sparked me into medicine. But prior to that, I was always into community health, like working at a homeless shelter in high school, um, being on a junior board member at a homeless shelter for women and children. And it, it, I started to see those worlds kind of collide because sometimes we think of our experiences prior to college as some like independent experiences. But I think it takes for us to be 
in college to, to see how those circles start to overlap and you see how you see a career coming or you see something, a passion developing. And I went from there to um, Loyola University. Northwestern doesn't have a nursing program. So I finished Northwestern with a bachelor's, went to Loyola in Chicago, did a 13 month nursing program, which was probably the craziest thing I've ever done. Um, And then I moved to New Orleans (laughs) where my then boyfriend, now husband, um, lived and um, started my career in ICU, children and pediatric ICU, um, okay. because that's where I, I wanted to, I wanted to like get in the trenches. <laughs> We're still thinking peds, but you'd made mm-hmm. the transition from doctor to nurse in yeah. your mentality, but you were still yeah. really focused on peds. Um, I want to ask you a question about your experience in England, working at the, basically the transgendered clinic. Mm-hmm. What was your awareness of transgender issues prior to this? Had you had it been on your radar at all? Or did this just kind of open up a whole world to you that, that wasn't really on your radar? I think I had an inkling of it in my curiosity as just Nikki. <laughs> I'm like, I wonder what the surgery is like <laughs> prior to that. But then like really being immersed in the clinic and in the patient population, it really opened my eyes to the mental um, the mental things that can come from this surgery, like if it does not go well. And that's why the NHS, the National Health Service pays for it. It's covered by insurance because if, if there are anything that does not happen physically, the way in which someone wants it, they felt that the mental side effects of that, they're like, we, we're going to be paying for it either way. <laughs> so we're going to go ahead and pay for it. And I just think like, I don't think you truly understand compassionate care when you're really trying to help somebody along a very hard journey that is not, I mean, it was 2003, 2002, 2003. So trans and empowerment and awareness just wasn't there. It just, it definitely wasn't in the United States, (laughs) but clearly there was some form of awareness in the UK for for the NHS to even pick up on this and say, you know what, we're going to carry this weight for our patients. So it really opened my eyes to marginalized populations, which I already had been, you know, immersed in it as a black woman, but just other populations that are feeling the weight of um, systemic prejudice (laughs) and, and things like that. Do you have any insight into why the UK is able to separate their largely religious views that mm-hmm. I know that they hold, there are plenty of them that are Christians, <laughs> right? <laughs> Let alone other religions that have beliefs that sometimes um, don't line up with supporting transgendered people. But how mm-hmm. is it that they, as a government, have figured out how to support this, and we can't? Let alone a million other things we don't support. Because we see sex as male and female, and penis and vagina. That's and what, like it. They do. I don't think I don't. I think they think of it more broadly. Like people can be who they want to be. You don't. And I think it's more status quo and more, you know, within the norm of you're abnormal if you're like that. And normal is heterosexual cis woman. <laughs> like that is what white woman. Um, that's how it is in the United States. And, and even now, like that was, you know, years ago. And even now I still feel that way. Like I still feel like just as we're trying to explain to people or I'm trying to explain this past weekend, I went to a conference and they're just like, I'm having a hard time with pronouns. I just don't get it. What don't you get? What don't you get? She's like, well, I just want to know what their preference is. It's not a preference. It is. It is what it is. 
accept it. You, I, I think we have to move beyond you. It's been so ingrained in your, in who you are and the way in which you grew up. But just like other things, we, we evolve. It's time for you to evolve your language. <laughs> and, and, it, and I still, I don't get it right 100% of this time. Damn it, I'm trying. Like I'm trying because it's just that important to understand someone else and where they're coming from and who they want to be. And that's my job is to help them be their healthiest version of themselves mentally and physically. So I think that's where the seed was planted in England and, you know, moving forward and having other experiences being in New Orleans. I mean, New Orleans does have a large trans population and we're more accepting of a trans population because, I mean, New Orleans is a whole different country (laughs) when you really think about it. There's so many different types of people in New Orleans, right? It's interesting, eclectic Mm-hmm. yet small city it's so it's yes. just such an interesting place yes. okay so um now that we've kind of gotten your background a little bit that already starts to give me little inklings of understanding of how it is that you didn't just enter the american medical system <laughs> <laughs> um can you tell us a little bit more about how you found your way so early in your career down the entrepreneurial path well i know several entrepreneurs my grandmother who helped raise me with my mother she was an entrepreneur. She owned a childcare center. Um, and and I, I get a lot of my community health um, background and passion from her. She inherited her home from a doctor. She worked for a doctor. Um, she was his nurse. Even though she had no formal training, she was trained in what he taught her. And they brought people into the home and they took care of the community, they provided community health. And, you know, I see myself living you know that through and and living her dream of having that and that's when she opened her childcare center she opened her door to people that needed to go to work it started with postpartum mothers who could not find anywhere to for any anyone to keep their children and they're like honeybee will keep them and so just taking care of postpartum families and knowing what they need it's so amazing that it's come full circle for me and I'm doing similar work um you know I my the reason why I opened my practice was because I needed someone to take care of me (laughs) and realize that I was the answer for other folks um so so I I had some postpartum complications mental mood disorders um I became extremely depressed um during that time I stopped breastfeeding I didn't want to go outside it was really a dark dark time and my brother's like I know what you need because the way my life happened up, I, I was having contractions. I was a week late taking my <laughs> board exams <laughs> to become a nurse practitioner. I was in there taking it, had the baby the next week, had this baby, I had moved into a new house, all these life changes. And I just felt like, wait, am I supposed to take care of this baby for the rest of my life? <laughs> like what, what happened to my career? I'm very much a worker and all my life. And I have to, if I'm not living my passion, then I, I just can't. <laughs> I, um, I have to help others. So in helping myself, in helping others, I help myself. Um, I was the change that I wanted to see in, in just providing home care to others. Because when you're in the hospital and you're working in the hospital, you're dealing, as a pediatric nurse, you're dealing with the, with the child, but you're also dealing with the parent too, because they're going through some of the same pains that this child is going through, the grieving of a child that it doesn't even necessarily have to pass. It's just the child that once was, right? Um, So in educating parents, I remember the pivot 
from inpatient to outpatient was I had a baby who had open heart surgery. This baby had Down syndrome. Um, and we were standing next to the bedside, the mother and I, and she was pregnant. And she said, um, I'm about to go outside and, and have a smoke break. Let me know. Text me if anything happens. And I said, oh, wait just a minute, sis. <laughs> I said, you I said, you do know <laughs> that um, you shouldn't be smoking. I said, that's going to hurt your baby. And I said, or, or I, I prefaced it, I said, have you tried to cut back on your smoking now that you're pregnant? That's the way I said it. And she said, I've tried, I've tried. And I said, let's talk about how to cut back. I said, I know quitting is just seems impossible, but let's see how we can cut back. I said, if you start your first cigarette at eight o'clock every day, let's see if we can make it to nine you know, going that way. And she said, I can do that. That seems doable. So we talked about it. We laughed. And then she went on. And then my nurse manager came over and she said, I heard your conversation. I was like, yeah, I was just giving her some, you know, information about cessation. You know, I'm tr- I was trying to, at the time, get my um, aunt to stop quitting. And I had looked up some information. She's like, that's not your lane. I said, pardon. <laughs> she said, that's not your lane. That's not your job. I'm gonna have to write you up for that. And I'm like, we can't even give educate. That's how this baby's here. You understand? Like I'm trying to prevent some stuff. That's when I knew she right. This wasn't my lane. I needed to be in a lane above hers. <laughs> I needed to be in a totally different lane. Um, so that's when I, I started immediately that day looking for outpatient jobs. And I ended up in adolescent medicine, which is, I know for sure my lane. <laughs> um, so yeah. So, okay. So how long were you a pediatric nurse? I was a pediatric nurse for seven years. Wow. You did it that long. Mm-hmm. I don't think I realized that here I am saying like, how did you become an entrepreneur so early in your career? And I think I thought it was earlier. Okay. So wait, mm-hmm. seven years, pediatric nurse. Now you make it to outpatient adolescent mm-hmm. health. How long are you there? I'm there for just a year because wow. I had started my, um, and it was an overlap, right? So I was started my D, my DMP. Oh, that means I need to start it. <laughs> I started my <laughs> FNP, um, started my FNP, but I was still PRN, right? So I had gone five years um, into pediatric nursing, hadn't started it. I said, let me start my DMP. I started it while I was in the ICU. And then I went to adolescent medicine. I'm like, this will be easier for me to do outpatient while doing this still doing PRN for another couple of years. And then I was like, I got to let this go. Um, but adolescent medicine, no, I did it a couple of years. I did it a couple of years. And then after that, I was like, okay, we got <laughs> to let this go. Um, but yeah, I started my practice. I graduated from school in 2012 with my NP and I started my practice uh, the same year. <laughs> So, okay, tell me a little bit about what the early phase was like for you, because now you have such well-developed programs. And I, even in the time I've known you, and I've known you now for four years, Mm -hmm. um, in the time I've known you, I've watched you evolve a lot in your offerings and the things you do. And there are so many things you do that you haven't even mentioned yet. So um, (laughs) that's what's crazy is we haven't even like touched the tip of the iceberg yet um, and all the things that you do. So don't be shy and sharing, but tell us a little bit about what the early days looked like of you trying to, to create this on your Mm -hmm. own. 
the early days were full of a lot of trial and error <laughs> and a lot of services just like throwing stuff out throw, just throwing it at the fan <laughs> throwing it at the wall and seeing the stick um because I didn't realize until maybe a year or two in I was ahead of my time I was ahead of my time trying to think that postpartum care could be done at home and but it wasn't it was ahead of my time for the United States it was not ahead of my time for other countries because that's how they do it that's how they've been doing it and and that was the thing it was hard for me to grasp like I'm like why isn't this working why is this working I'm like oh well they don't do that here <laughs> just in contacting insurance companies they would tell me we don't do that here and I'm like but you should though he said I didn't say it was right and that was my first interaction with Medicaid he was like I didn't say it was right I just said we don't do it here and we're still just barely moving the needle on this. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's right. happening, but it's really, really, really? slow. The rollout uh, of, of postpartum services and doula care, right? Those yes. two things are happening so slowly and they're actually happening in ways that don't work. Like no. I, I don't know how much I know that I'm New York centric in a way that you're mm -hmm. not, but you know, the New York doula program sounded like yeah. such a miracle thing. And then they want to pay these doulas some like Pins. very low. Yeah. And they're Pins. like, well, there's no program now because we can't afford to do that. That's not mm -hmm. a living wage. Right. So in New York. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a living wage in Texas. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it's the same thing with postpartum, you know, trying to code things that we know are essential services in the mm -hmm. postpartum period. <laughs> right. Right. And, and my, my other, um, thing that I wrestled with was charging people. I'm like, I shouldn't be charging people for this. It should go through insurance, but it can't go through insurance because I was not the provider for their prenatal care exactly. because it's called the maternal, the OB package. Right. And so I can't, I can't infiltrate that package because it's within six weeks, right. Which is when they need the care. So after the six weeks, guess what happens? They Medicaid, they drop you. So yeah. I'm like, okay, where is my goal? Like, how do I get in here? I have to charge people. I right. started out, Tanya, with pennies. I was charging $40 for a one hour in-person home visit for lactation. 40, every, and yet yeah, nobody was calling me because it still was so novel. Well, and it's hard to ask people to spend more money when they're paying out the nose in insurance premiums yes. and trying to meet their deductible. I look, we're, we're, we're in this together <laughs> and we know this fight. Um, we've tackled it really differently and it's partly because you're braver than I am <laughs> and you've done amazing things in terms of, you know, fighting for grants and getting grants and doing mm -hmm. some amazing work. Tell everyone about your work with the homeless shelter in new Orleans. Yes. So I had to figure out a way to help the clients that I wanted to serve, the marginalized populations, but also make a living <laughs> because Sally Mae does not understand philanthropic <laughs> <laughs> So I said, why don't I, I need to show people that I'm needed, right? I need to fill a gap. I need to show people that I'm filling a gap. So I reached out to homeless shelters and, and Healthy Start in the wicks and I was like look you don't have a lactation personal staff you don't have a nurse practitioner staff this is what I can offer you and they're already getting grants millions of dollars <laughs> from large corporations that I can't even dream of getting a grant from and they're you know they said well we we you you would fill a void for us so that's where I kind of slid in 
And I said, I had to do it at a lower rate to start just to prove myself. But when they saw the outcomes of me coming, you know, three hours a week, they gave me three hours. That's all I could do, three hours to change around maternal care at this homeless shelter. First, when I went in there, I took away the idea of that they had to be discharged at seven months pregnant. They were discharging everyone from the shelter if you're seven months pregnant because they were like, we don't want you to go into labor here. And I was like, please explain to me what you think happens when they go into labor. <laughs> like it was just a lot of education, right? Of, you know, you do, you're, you're located next to two hospitals. <laughs> All you gotta do is call the ambulance. It's the same as if they went into labor at their mom's house or at the grocery store. Somebody would call the ambulance. So let's get over that fear, right? And the next thing was, oh, well, you know, the, educating them. I was like, I can educate them. Let's educate. They don't have a doctor. I got you. Let's help them find a, a provider. Let's help them get linked to services. So they're fully prepared social-wise for this baby, but health-wise for this baby. So they're not, we're not having premature labors. We're not having C-sections. We're not having any of those things. And so that's where we are. Like our numbers drastically improved. We now keep people to three to four months postpartum. We, you know, our C-section rate has drastically decreased. We've had a couple of VBACs um, and we're getting, and people are going to term. They had never even seen a term pregnancy happen there because, or a lot of the, the um, parents that I'm working with, they're like, I've never gone to term. I've never gone to 40 weeks. That's because we were making sure they were eating. They didn't, because they had these weird rules that were just for what we call singles, people that did not have children that were not pregnant. So like mainly our male residents, they can't eat after a certain time. They can't have food in their room. They can't, I was like, this person's pregnant. I said, have you ever been pregnant? Yes, I've been pregnant. And how did you feel at 11 o'clock at night? Like I could eat my pillow. She feels the same way. <laughs> <laughs> I love Stop that. doing that. This is not prison. <laughs> like what is wrong with you? Even in prison, they should get this. <laughs> yeah. So we, we really changed the landscape there. And now they have a full program um, in New Orleans. And I'm hoping that they can, it's the first, it's the first um, home show because it's part of a larger system that has this full program there. And I, and I like to think that I helped get it off the ground and get it moving in the right direction. And we were able to save some lives and help people thrive. Wow. That's incredible. I'm so, uh, I love your work so much. Um, okay. So Will you tell us a little bit about your three main community programs yep. you offer out of Bloom? Um, mm -hmm. And as far as I understand them, they are Bloom Community Health, yes. Bloom Period, and mm -hmm. My Yoni. So let's take those yes. separately, and I want to hear the details of each of those programs. We hope you're enjoying the Mother Wit podcast. If you are, please rate us and leave a review in iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to your podcast. Thanks so much. Now, back to the show. So Bloom Community Health is our philanthropic arm of, you know, I understand that what we're providing is a self-pay service, right? We don't let insurance dictate what we do at Bloom Internal Health. So it's a self-pay service and it can often be seen as a concierge service, okay? So I said, but I think concierge doesn't necessarily have to mean privilege. It doesn't mean that you have all this money. Like people, other folks should be able to, this is basic care. <laughs> they should be getting home visits because actually someone... Um, that may be um, homeless or unhoused, they have more barriers. So it would be easier for me to come to them. So that's what we came in and said, let's apply for some grants. And it really kind of exploded during COVID when there was more money out there for folks that didn't have to be a 501c3. 
So I applied for grants and we were able to really grow Bloom where we provide a month supply of diapers with our visits. We provide blood pressure cuffs um, and we do prenatal support where we childbirth education, birth planning, you know, case management really, and then postpartum care. I'm coming in, I'm checking your blood pressure with your cuff showing you, you have your parameters, green light, red light, <laughs> yellow light, all those things that we've set up for them. And it's really help, it's helping marginalized populations that cannot afford um, Bloom Maternal Health. Um, period, Bloom Period came about for just looking at the extension of Bloom Community Health when folks aren't, you know, they have their period. If you're thinking about diapers that can't afford diapers, they can't afford period products either because all of that went up drastically during that time. But then when you really dive deep into the concept of period poverty, it's our students and our college students and our high school students that cannot afford it. Because if you're in a house of folks with periods and everybody's sharing these period products, I mean, like it, it can, you can get depleted. The schools are not providing this, which there's a bill recently now to get that provided. But this was a real problem where people were missing school or doing things that could lead to infection, like wearing a pad too long um, or sticking toilet paper up there in their vagina and things like that. So that really pushed us to really help the schools. I'm a former school nurse in, in adolescent medicine. That's what I did. I worked at high schools and, and middle schools. And that was near and dear to me because I contacted some of my school nurse friends that are still in the game. And they were like, look, you know, we didn't have period products. I said, I know. I said, let me help you out. So I started with the schools that I worked with in the past and we were able to give it out to three universities, three shelters and like eight schools. Um, so it kind of grew from there and everyone's like, well, I need period products, I need period products. And then people wanted to donate because they understand, we think of it as a third world situation. It's in a first world <laughs> country, okay? where well, we have period poverty. Um, and then my yoni going on from period poverty, folks don't even know about their period. They don't know. And I started a video series uh, in 2020 in the boredom of the pandemic called Women's Health Wednesday. And just really just started off, my first video was talking about yeast infections and it kind of just blew up and was shared and everything and going on from there. And I just brought up like common topics. I'm like, maybe they don't know about this. Maybe they don't know about this. And it's no, people didn't know. The video on the three holes, people didn't know. This lady argued me up and down in my DMs that she pees and poops at the same hole. And I say, it's impossible. Nope. Really? really? I said, but if you do, you have a fistula and you need to go get it checked out. Oh. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure you don't though. <laughs> well, you know, I will make sure in the show notes to link to this video series for people so they can see. <laughs> but my favorite part of your video series that has carried on even is your awesome props. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you have the best props. And most recently you had like the scarf with the big boobs that I just loved. I'm like, I want all those toys. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I, because I teach the way I learn, I am not a learner where I read. Um, and I, if any of my nursing professors are here, it's like, I never read not one of those books. <laughs> okay. I look at the summaries, but I look at the pictures. I can I can decipher if I can, I can look at something and figure out how it works by looking at a picture. And that's just the way I learn. So, and, and that's how I teach my clients because a lot of us are visual learners, actually. And whatever type of learner you were as a five-year-old, you're that same type of learner as a 35-year-old. It doesn't change. But yet when we become 35, 25, we only put things in one way. 
that's why Instagram is such, and TikTok and stuff are a huge successes because that's how people learn and get their information. They're not readers. And at some points, people are like, well, they are getting lazy. Some point, I don't think they were ever. <laughs> right. I mean, I think there's there are legit visual learners mm-hmm. in the world for sure. I also think that all of our social media tools and computers and screens and all of that yes. stuff may be impacting. We we know this. It's impacting yes. our, our uh, attention span. Yes. <laughs> we want it in 30 seconds or less. Right, exactly. <laughs> and that, that justifies the 30 seconds or minute tops video yes. people will actually pay attention to. Um, yeah. It's like, if you look at the stats of, of your videos, you're like, oh, people don't even last that long sometimes, right? Yes. And I'm you looking are. at the YouTube videos and it says yep. the average time, because my videos are like five to seven minutes. The average time is two minutes. Yeah. No, it's pretty appalling. I mean, it definitely makes me aware that I, I, I need to change up tactics sometimes because mm-hmm. I tend to be pretty long winded, but I don't, I don't, I'm not very good at this like soundbite thing, right? That's why I'm doing a podcast <laughs> so that I don't have to think about this anymore. Like, I just want to talk to really brilliant people and mm-hmm. my clients who are telling their really beautiful or sad or hard or difficult stories mm-hmm. and just like not have to edit each other so much because right. there's a time and a place for this. People put you in their ears and they go for a long walk or whatever they do. Mm-hmm. Um, awesome. Wait, so I had one question about Bloom Community Health because yeah. that involves in-person services. It's not mm-hmm. entirely virtual. Where is that being offered? What cities? So it is being offered in... Texas, um, and Houston. We hope to be expanding to Dallas, which is my hometown. Um, and it is in new Orleans. Um, I do go back to travel back to new Orleans once a month. I'm, I'm trying to stick to once a month or at least every other month to check in with some of the clients that I've from there. And then sometimes the hospital while I'm there, they're like, can you go see a client? And I was like, sure. <laughs> we can't find them. And they call me the nurse bounty hunter because I can find anybody. <laughs> And, and it's usually means that they've missed their appointment and they're just concerned about them and they want somebody to go check on them. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I, it sounds like things are hybrid at this point. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Got it. Got it. Okay, cool. Um, so let's see. Ah, there's a story I wanted you to tell our listeners. It's a story that I heard for the first time, not even knowing that it was your own story. Uh, Nikki partook in uh, a breastfeeding grand rounds. Who is it that puts that on again? Um, New Orleans Breastfeeding Center and Birthmark Doulas. Right. Okay. So they were putting on a virtual, this is during the pandemic, a virtual breastfeeding grand rounds. And I was like, I want to go. I want to know what that's all about. Mm-hmm. Um, here I was doing all this virtual breastfeeding work and getting really good at it and super excited <laughs> about it. And I was like, I'm going to do this. Anyway, go to this thing. And um, Nikki, you know, is leading this kind of large case study that goes on for a really long time. And mm-hmm. when the story was over um, and all the feedback had come in and everybody's answering what they would do at various stages of this very interesting story, Nikki uh, tells us that this was her own personal real life story. And it was so mind blowing. I thought mm-hmm. it was fiction the whole time. I thought it mm-hmm. was being fabricated for our learning purposes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so will you share this story with our listeners? Yeah, so during Isaac, um, it was a hurricane that happened here in New Orleans. Well, it happened in New Orleans in 2012. Um, I just had my son. Um, and and, I, and mind you, Isaac was in August. But I had my son in July. Uh, my son, he came home and he had some, um, 
stopped breathing. We went to the hospital. He was um, intubated and all these things. And um, come to find out he had a urinary tract infection. So we were in the hospital quite a long time um, because he was septic. But this whole time I'm making massive amounts of milk because when your baby's in the hospital, they tell you to pump and you just pumping and pumping and pumping (laughs) and pumping. So I had a supply for like four babies. Um, and so, you know, when we get him home, we get settled. We're like, okay, that's over. He's healthy. A hurricane comes. <laughs> and so I, um, get in the car, we get in the car and I'm from Dallas. And if you think about New Orleans and you got to get to Dallas, it's an eight hour drive on a, you know, on a good weather day. This was taking a long time. <laughs> and, um, and going that way, I had this huge supply of milk, Right. <laughs> And I didn't know exactly know what to do with it at the time. I mean, I'm versed. If you think of a healthcare provider, ask any healthcare provider to solve their own problems. And we sometimes we can't. <laughs> Were you an IBCLC yet? No. Okay, I couldn't Mm-mm. remember that part. Mm-mm. Got it. Not yet. I was, but I had been doing the work. I as in lactation in the hospital, I was that person. And you know, and and in the community, I was that person. But I just could not wrap my head around. I'm like, I don't know what to do with all this milk in this situation of being on the road, having limited, you know, uh, supply of ice bags. No one, no one thinks about these things. And the point of the um, Grand Rounds was to educate folks about breastfeeding during a disaster, <laughs> um, but also bringing up like, how do we deal with um, oversupply and, and then going to and stopping, you know, I had to go to a shelter. Um, folks didn't know how to help me. <laughs> like it was, it was, traumatic um when you now that you know in hindsight and thinking about those things but getting um I don't even I don't even remember if this was in the story but getting mastitis um um large um plug ducts I mean my breasts were bigger than my child's head what I, what I think I remember mm-hmm. is about you being in the shelter and mm-hmm. there being rules yeah. around your milk and what you could and couldn't do. And it was really inhibiting your ability to sort through what you They needed. didn't have any storage for us. They, they said, well, you can do formula. You know, we don't really have a setup for that because they were more concerned about my privacy. And I was like, I don't care <laughs> about my privacy. <laughs> like, but also in that, um, you know, we're trying to keep families together, but trying to keep it safe. But there are other people around you that are, that they were afraid of people seeing my breasts out and you know feeling some type of way like not having mixed feelings of anger or sexual feelings that was the concern and and my husband was like he hadn't really thought about it he was like oh that does make sense like can we have a cover and they're like we're just not really set up for this and I'm like what does that mean like I can't even I didn't even know how to advocate for myself because it was so absurd that no one had ever thought about that. During disasters, we think about the elderly, how are they gonna get, we think about dogs, cats, how are they gonna get their care? But we don't think about pregnant and postpartum women, how are they gonna get their care? And they were really pushing formula. They were pushing it so hard. And I was like, but I have milk, I just need to pump. I need to, you know, hook it up. I need to relieve relieve some of this. I was getting plug ducts, it was, was a nightmare. <laughs> you made it to the other side of that experience and ultimately mm-hmm. continued to breastfeed. Yes, I did for a long time. Yeah. yeah. That is quite the battle that you fought there. It's pretty wild. Yeah. And, and it, it really, you know, 
tune me into where the deficits are in our community in helping folks like myself. But just think about if I had, if I didn't have a partner with me, you know, if I didn't have a pump with me, if I didn't have things of my own to kind of remedy my problem, how would they've been able to help me? It would have been disastrous as far as my milk supply, as far as my child staying breastfed, as far as, you know, my health. Um, because no one would have been, if I didn't have the, some knowledge of lactation, you know, um, it would, it would have gone left real quick. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was going to ask you, you know, what lessons from that experience show up in the work you do every single day, but I think mm -hmm. you've more or less. Just helping people advocate for themselves yeah. and, and, and trying to educate our community on a daily basis. Like recently I have these, um, lactation infant feeding provider um, toolkits that I've created. It's just a folder of handouts that I've ordered from all these different entities or printed out. And it's about latch and position, um, diaper count and you know stomach size and, and things like that, just basic information. So we're not out here telling people no, because a lot of times we tell people no because we don't know and no just seems safer, right? but we're not understanding the consequences of telling someone no when it's time to breastfeed. Like, no, you can't breastfeed. Well, what do you mean I can't breastfeed? Like I've been breastfeeding. Like what am I supposed to do with all this? But then you don't know what to, how to help them <laughs> once you've told them no. So my thing is just educating providers because this information that we both have I bet we didn't, some, we didn't learn this in school. <laughs> Not at all. And that's what most of this podcast is about. When I, right. when I interview a professional, most of our conversation it, in the most obvious or not way mm -hmm. is about all the things that we learned after school from our experiences or from our decisions to, mm -hmm. to leave a system that was broken that we recognized we were, it's kind of like when you were talking about um, people saying, no, I mm -hmm. was hearing that and saying, yeah, that's people just staying in their lane mm -hmm. and which has become a bigger and bigger societal problem, even mm -hmm. outside of medicine. Right. It's like, yeah. what were those viral videos not long ago where it might've been New York city? I can't remember, but people, someone was being beat up and on the mm -hmm. subway, I think it was. And, you know, people just didn't jump in at mm -hmm. all. Hundreds of people watched and didn't right. help. And it's kind of that idea of not putting up a fight and letting things be the way that they need to be. Right. Right. What happened to our village? You know, we are the village. Like we have to, you know, it's kind of like parenting. No one was meant to parent alone. No one was meant to parent alone. I, you know, like I would think of my grandmother's time. They didn't parent alone. My mama had several mothers <laughs> in her community that could help. And they offered different things that maybe my grandmother couldn't at the time or different lessons that she has in her life. And I know all of those women and they're still around and they're helping me parents. <laughs> um, but, and that's what, but we get so started, it's not my business. They're an adult, they can do what they wanna do. We're so, we're at this weird gray space of allowing people to be who they are in an adult and not interfering, but also, not knowing when to help them when they're, because it's so isolating, you know, they're isolated. And that's where we get into this postpartum disparities, postpartum morbidities and mortalities is that we are allowing people to parent and heal by themselves <laughs> and trying to figure it out on their own or saying, it's not actually that important. 
you sh- you'll be fine. The baby's out. You're fine now, but they aren't. Well, once again, it's, it sometimes comes down to not knowing how to solve the problem. And so you just say, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's always been this way. It can't be that bad. Right. So I think you just may have answered the crux of where I was going to go next with you, which is <laughs> to say that I know that we stand on the same soapbox when it comes to the gaps in postpartum care. Um, but I would love it if you would tell me what you think is the biggest gap inside of the gap, like the biggest problem. If we could wave a magic wand and fix one minutia of the big, huge sinking ship of a problem that we have, what would it be? We think postpartum ends at six weeks. Right. Of course. We think it, we, we, and our patients fall off a cliff. The people just call it a gap, you know, between hospital and community care. They're like, oh, they fall in this gap. You know, if they don't No, everybody falls off a cliff. Yeah. I, I, a cliff. Maybe we should change it from the postpartum care gap to the postpartum cliff. It's a cliff. <laughs> it's a cliff. And your privilege, your privilege determines how hard your fall is right and that and that's a problem yeah but also it's it it is education because there are very privileged people who just still don't know any better like Mm -hmm. and I hate that it's true but sometimes it's the people with money and loud voices Mm -hmm. who raise the issue and that is what's happening people white people people with money have experiences and say, Hey, guess what? Everyone else, there's a problem. And everyone else Mm -hmm. is like, yeah, I know I've been living the problem. Right. Right. Um, And the privilege can be a lack of education. The privilege can be whether you have a house or not, you know, the privilege can be whether you're uh, incarcerated or not, you know, like things like that, because the privilege can also be whether you had a baby that lived or not. Right. Because you don't get the same type of postpartum care. Stillborn, stillbirths do not get the same type of postpartum care. NICU families don't get the same type of postpartum care. So it's like you have to fit within this little box in order for things for people to check up on you. You know, we saw that during you know COVID at the beginning of COVID, who was getting blood pressure cuffs faster? Did you have insurance? Yes, you got a blood pressure cuff faster to monitor yourself at home. Folks that didn't have insurance or you had Medicaid, you did not get a blood pressure cuff. So it, it really, it really is like the loud voices. It is the, you know, access to care. Um, it is the insurance versus no insurance, you know, things like that. It is heterosexual couples versus not heterosexual couples. <laughs> um, so it, do you, I, a, do, do you, sorry, do you live in a state where they have expanded Medicaid or not? Ooh, come on now. <laughs> <laughs> The folks uh, don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, I think that's, that's the work that you and I are doing and there are a select small group of others. And if you're out there listening and you're doing this work, I want to hear from you and I want you to be on the show. Cause I want people <laughs> to know about you too. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we are trying so hard to provide a service that we know people desperately need in order to manage their mental health in the postpartum period in order to make the transition back into, I hate to say it, what I'm about to say might come out wrong, back into society in a certain way, Mm -hmm. right? Because whether you stop working for days or weeks or months or years because of your baby, and we know that there are a million unique situations that lead to each of those paths, you have to find your way back in. 
And finding your way back in early obviously comes with its own challenges. And so does taking a break. People mm-hmm. just can't figure it out. I, I equate being postpartum sometimes to a game of double dutch. Like, I just don't know how to break this rhythm. I don't know how yeah. to break in. You know, we're both mm-hmm. doing the dance, right? The like the movement of like, how do I get in there? Mm-hmm. It, it's so tough. And if you don't have consistent ongoing support and someone that you trust, you get lost and you can't find your way. And then you fall down the rabbit hole or off the cliff or in the gap or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. Um, and I think that's what we're both screaming so loud about. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's so, it's unfortunate that we put so much emphasis on babies because babies are great. Babies, they don't send home unhealthy babies. They don't, no. they will not send home an unhealthy baby, unstable baby, but they will send home an unhealthy parent, sure. an unhealthy, an unsupported parent, a parent that doesn't have resources. Did someone ask if they have food at their house? You know, things like that, um, tears and, you know, nipples or they said it hurt, but they're like, oh, you can go, but you can go on your blood pressure, 150 over 80. You can still go home. You can still go home, you know, but they wouldn't have sent home a baby having any of those issues. And that's the problem. Well, and on a, on a different note, but related note, no new parent ignores anything that their baby does that concerns them. Mm-hmm. They're calling, but people don't call about themselves. Mm-mm. They suck it up and they suck it up and they suck it up until they're mm-hmm. dying. Yep. And that's, that's the thing, right? I'm in everyone's ear saying, I want to know everything. If something even Mm -hmm. crosses your mind that it's not normal, I want you to tell me, I want to be in conversation about that right away. Yeah. Uh, Trusting your gut. I tell them, trust your gut. It will never fail you. Even if it's saying in the back of your mind, like this just seems a little trusted, trusted. And that's why we're educating families. I do. I educate the parent, the birthing parent, but I also educate more the people around it. So like in your home, I'm going to educate them about the postpartum warning signs more than I educate you because you're living it. You're not going to be aware of it. You're not going to know what's happening to you. Those other folks around you, they can see what's wrong with you. Why are you acting like that? You know, things like that. You may mention, oh, I have a headache in their head. They have it. They can go to the thing and say, oh, this is one of those warning signs. I need to get you in. So that's what I think we need to change the focus of just educating the birthing parent but also educating their support so they can really provide support. (laughs) Well, I'm assuming you do this in your program too. Um, Once I've done an intake on the birthing person, I ask for explicit permission to intake their partner. And Mm -hmm. it's not the same intake, but I intake their partner and then I get their information. And many times I have a separate text message thread with the partner. And sometimes I have like a consistent three-way text message. We're always on the same message and just Mm -hmm. one parent might be working and ignore it, but everybody's seeing the same messages so that nobody has to loop anyone back in. Yep. Um, And you know, not everybody takes advantage of that feature. Mm -hmm. And I don't always know where that comes from. Mm -hmm. So like, oh, did the partner not want to do it? Did the birthing person not want mm-hmm. the partner involved? I've had a couple clients explicitly say, I'm giving this as a gift to myself. So this is just mm-hmm. for me. And I'm like, okay, cool. I can get on board with mm-hmm. that. Um, and that's cool. If that's how you want to treat it, fine. I want this to be what you need it to be. But I, you know, I've had lots of people just kind of like fill out the intake and then not be involved. And I think sometimes, especially male mm-hmm. partners, they just aren't quite sure how to stay engaged. And I kind of see it as an emergency contact and your emergency support. Like, hey, I just want to share. And I don't have to do it every time. But I was like, hey, I'm going to share this. I tell them first, hey, I'm going to share this with your support. Also, I'm going to put this in the support chat. Um, We call it the support chat. And this is our personal chat. 
but I'm going to just drop this in there. You know, when it's on my mind or if the person, the birthing person says something to me and I was like, I'm going to put this in the support chat just to make your support person aware. Is that okay? And then they were like, okay. So, um, so yeah, is it, we have to, we're changing the whole narrative, Tanya. <laughs> and that's where, <laughs> when you're, when you're changing a narrative, you're like, we're changing the cover of the book, what it looks like, how heavy it is, how much information is in it. Like we're, we're game changers. So well, speaking of how heavy the book is, <laughs> um, I, we, we briefly mentioned uh, the other day when we were chatting about the World Health Organization coming out with a 236 page document on optimal postpartum care, which I've started to uh, peruse. <laughs> All right. So my last question for you is that I would really like for you to share with me and my listeners, but this is really for me. Um, I wanna know what you as a black woman and a black healthcare provider want or need most from your white allies, friends, and supporters. Is it money? Is it political action? Is it a stronger sense of allyship and just a willingness to do the work? Like, what is it on a broad sense, right? And I didn't mean to direct that from you to me specifically. Mm -hmm. I'm asking the big question because I want the answer. I think it is to truly check bias, right? Um, and do the work because it's so often, but also help pave the pathway of, for other black and brown people to get to where we are, right? There, there were some very strategic movements by, you know, allies and activists and advocates in my life. And I appreciate that. And I've shown, you know, shown my appreciation, but I just need more people to do that. You know, like if you know, if you know someone doing the work, just say, you know, like, or advocate. And, and use your voice. Um, there's so often that it's, we feel muted or um, our voices feel small and it's just because we can't get in front of the right person. And that will open the door for money. That will open the door for policy change. It's just using your position that you have to help others um, that don't look like you because there are patients that don't look like you, that need folks that look like them. Yeah, I hear you on all of that. And it brings me to another question. Mm -hmm. How does part of that answer relate to the need to support? Because this is where this is where I spend a lot of mental energy as a midwifery mm -hmm. educator is I want to make more black midwives and more black providers more than anything, because mm -hmm. I want... I want you guys to do the work. I want mm -hmm. you to be out there doing the work for me. So there's a part of me that as much as I want to do and be everything that you just mm -hmm. said, I, sometimes I get stuck on this one idea and I'm a very literal person and I can mm -hmm. get a one track mind. So where am I a little off in my thinking where I'm, that's my, often my focus is how can I be the best teacher, mentor, professor, whatever role I'm in at that moment to black midwifery students or nurse practitioners or whomever? Um, I think that education is key, you know, like just that's not being one track, but I think you have to work with what you got, like, right. You can't just, you know, create more applicants <laughs> or anything like that. But what you can do is with the pool of people that you have, because they talk 
and they're your best advertisement for the programs that in which you teach is like create that air, create that space of awareness, create that space of talking about having hard conversations. Um, I recently was a part of a panel for a program in UTMB in Galveston, and they're talking their whole semester is about systemic racism in healthcare. And I was like, what? What do you like? Where did this even come from? Like, how, like, how did they allow this? That's my first thought is how did they allow you to talk to these students about systemic racism for a semester in the state of Texas? <laughs> so, so having spaces like that where you, it's not just something like, oh, during Black Maternal Health Week, let's talk about it. No, that's Black Maternal Health is 365 because a Black woman is dying postpartumly every day, every day. And so that's why when those weeks come around, that's not for me. That's not for me. That's I'm doing this work every day. It is for others to say, hey, put it on your radar. It's, yep. it's almost like a reminder. Like I need to keep integrating this into my work every single day. Let me pull all the copious amounts of resources that will come out on this, on this week <laughs> and integrate it into my practice. So integrate it into your teaching and the yep. things that you do and changing the space around you with your colleagues, yep. you know, and, and changing their viewpoint and educating them to check their bias and to, incorporate and to realize have the realization that the things that we've been taught have been based on systemic racism so um so that that's your that's your zone of influence and it just cultivate it from there you don't have to go do anything new it's just cultivate what you have that's a great answer thank you <laughs> thank you for sharing that I hope that our listeners are, I know that was very healthcare centric um, and our listeners are often also healthcare consumers mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, when it comes to healthcare consumers, one of the other things that I've been super focused on is making sure that white people know about the Earth app too, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> it's important that they contribute what they know, um, or rather, I said that wrong because white people can't contribute what they know mm -hmm. on the Earth app, but that they honor the reviews provided mm -hmm. by our black and brown friends. Yes. And if a provider is getting bad reviews, I think white people shouldn't go to that provider either. So, right. you know, these sound like little simple things, but I think that they have the power to change the, change the power dynamic a little mm -hmm. bit. Um, mm -hmm. So I think about that a lot. Yeah, I think about how I can help our students succeed. And I think about how I can change the power dynamic about who holds the power in healthcare. Those are, yeah. those are two of the things I spend a lot of energy on. Um, Nikki, do you have any... Thing you want to add to this conversation or any questions for me before we wrap up? I thank you for inviting me. And I just want to say, like, I think what you're doing is amazing. And you talk about how bold I am, but you are bold. Like you, you put your mind to it and you do it. And I'm like, I just wait, <laughs> let me just wait. And I'll just keep waiting. Um, but you put it out there, you shoot your shot and, and you, you made many goals. So I want you to give yourself props on that. And I'm so proud of you and this podcast and the direction you're going. Thank you. But, you know, we're, we're, after listening to you talk about your early days, I realized that I'm, I'm in my early days. So I'm throwing shit at the wall to see what sticks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still doing that. I'm still doing that. <laughs> I think we're always doing that because at the root of what we're throwing at the wall is something 
that we truly believe in and that could potentially be powerful. Mm -hmm. And so we're just tweaking and tweaking and tweaking, right? We're trying to figure out how to be heard, how to make change. Um, And it takes on a lot of different shapes and forms, seeing what people can do because Mm -hmm. people want this. They just can't necessarily pay for it. That's the bottom line. People in the know want what we have to offer. Mm -hmm. I love you, Nikki. (laughs) I love you too. (laughs) Thank you so much for doing this with me today. You're welcome. You're welcome. It's me, Tanya, your host here at the Motherwit Podcast. You know I sometimes invite my clients on the show to talk about their birth stories and postpartum experiences, but I want to tell you a little bit more about what those clients and I actually do together. I started Motherwit to help people in the perinatal period achieve their health and wellness goals. That means whether you're hoping to conceive and struggling with high blood pressure or high blood sugar, or you're having trouble managing anxiety or depression in the postpartum period, Or maybe you just need support and advocacy between prenatal or postpartum visits. I can help. Get a discount on your first consultation with me at motherwitmaternity.com using the code FIRSTCONSULT10% OFF. That's 10% symbol, all one word. I'm looking forward to working with you and maybe having you on the show too.